Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a weekly podcast produced by Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy. Cure. This week, I'm excited to welcome Debbie Flader to the podcast. Debbie is an original co-founder of Cure and has worked and advocated in the epilepsy community for more than 20 years. She is currently the Director of Clinical Outreach at the Epilepsy Foundation of Greater Chicago and is also the founder and board chair of the Angel Wings Foundation, which is dedicated to enhancing the lives of adults with epilepsy through independent community living. Debbie's daughter, Noelle, was diagnosed at eight years old with Rasmussen's encephalitis, a catastrophic form of epilepsy that produces hundreds of seizures per day and does not respond well to treatment. Part of Noelle's care includes an action plan. Debbie is here today to talk to us about creating and executing an action plan and the benefits of several new rescue medications beginning to hit the market soon. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so thrilled to have you here and your years of expertise. Oh, thank you for um, having me. Absolutely. So you have been in this epilepsy world for decades now, unfortunately. Yes. Yes. Um, tell us about your daughter, Noelle, and when she was first diagnosed and, and your history with this wretched condition. Um, February 12, 1992. Noelle had her first seizure. Uh, it wasn't a clinical seizure as many people would recognize as a seizure. She complained about her hands falling. That was her first symptom. But she complained about it for three or four days. So we took her to our primary care physician who thought, you know, nothing of it. He said, well, she's maybe got a little virus or something, so go back home. Um, a few days later, we noticed that she was having some mouth movement. Her, her mouth was pulling to the side and twitching. We now recognize at this point that those were focal seizures, but we weren't familiar with epilepsy. You know, she was born healthy. Uh, she was eight years old and had no health issues until February 12, 1992. For weeks and weeks, she complained about pain in her teeth. She complained about um, not being able to sleep. And the twitching was pretty relentless. It was continuing. It was building steam. During the night, she would sit on the couch and she, the twitching would go constantly. So I took her back to the primary care physician and said, there's something definitely not right here. He sent us for our first of many CT scans. <clears throat> Came out negative, you know, nothing that they could see. Totally normal. Uh, he suggested we go to a general neurologist, pediatric neurologist, which we did. Um, she had an EEG that looked pretty normal, and he told us that our daughter had middle child syndrome. That was her initial diagnosis, so we went home. I'm sorry, I have to stop you there for just a minute. You had a general neurologist diagnose your twitching child yes. with middle child? Middle child okay. syndrome, yes, because she is the middle child, and she's always had that really rambunctious personality, um, and he thought she was attention-seeking. Okay, go on. I just, that <laughs> yeah. just like, it's something it, like it's, it just sends something up and down yeah. my spine yeah. that, you know, this it, is going because on. Because you're a young parent. I was young at the time and had no health issues with any of my children. And this is the information I had gotten. So I'm trying to treat her behaviorally a little bit different in the home. Mm -hmm. 
you know, thinking, are you, what are you lacking here, honey? What do you, what do you need? Are you not getting enough tension because you feel like you're in the middle? <laughs> well, the twitching continued, and my husband and I said, no, let's just go down to Children's Memorial. It was back in 1992. Let's just take her through the emergency room. So we did that, and of course, we got there, and, you know, she wouldn't seize there. Well, she's tended to have seizures between sleep and awake. When she was trying to doze, you know, that period between sleep and awake, I said, Noelle, you're going to lay on this gurney and we're going to get you to go to sleep. So I tried to get her to doze off, tried to soothe her a little bit, made her comfortable, cover her up with a blanket. She sure enough started to have the seizures. Mm -hmm. So general neurology came back in. They said, oh, we better admit her. I said, thank you. So she spent two weeks at Children's Memorial, you know, EEG, spinal tap, MRI, um, extended I don't, gosh, I don't even think they had extended video monitoring at that time. It was just the old-fashioned paper EEG. And they did notice abnormality on her EEG. So they discharged us thinking possibly it could be Rasmussen's encephalitis, which is actually her diagnosis. But we didn't get that definitively because the only definitive way to um, provide that diagnosis to the parents is to have a brain biopsy. I'm going to stop you for a second. I do want to find out what, um, what are the characteristics of Rasmussen's? Well, so it typically affects girls 10 years and under, um, one side of the brain, and it tends to um, create brain atrophy, where the brain starts to shrink in size in the hemisphere. The only uh, treatment option at that time was hemispherectomy, where they remove the half of the brain. Mm -hmm. And it was her dominant side, so there was no option at all surgically for Noel at that time. So I joined a support group immediately. We had one in our community in Carroll Stream where I live out in the western suburbs. And they told me about a wonderful doctor at uh, the Rush University in Chicago. I said, you got to go see him. He's great. So we did. And uh, this physician was Noel's doctor in August of 1992, and he still treats her today. So we have a really great relationship with him, and Noel simply adores him. In 1992, any testing, um, there was no good way to look through the skull, the bone, to see if she had a tumor on the inside. So he said, we have to do an operation to open her up and take a look to make sure she doesn't have a brain tumor. We said, okay, so we're preparing for that. Um, we saw him in August. Her surgery was November 4th of 1992. So she didn't have a tumor. I thought, whatever else comes our way, we'll be okay because she's going to be okay. She'll, you know, she's going to survive this. So she spent two weeks in the hospital, went back home, and she continued to seize. And that was in 1992. Fast forward 28 years, she's still continuing to seize. It's been rarely a day without a seizure in all these years. So she is still having seizures? She's still not... having seizures. The last year we've had her on a, a CBD uh, treatment regime, and she's doing better. The seizures have decreased, but because of the isolation and... Um, the ongoing uncontrolled epilepsy over the years. She's developed, you know, mental health stuff. Which is a, a major comorbidity yeah. with, with epilepsy. I mean, the two especially, I, you know, you see it in um, those um, who have not been terribly affected intellectually mm -hmm. that do grasp their situation, that mm -hmm. those, those really do go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So it's challenging, and she continues to be isolated, and she seems to want to withdraw more and more. She just prefers to be by herself at this point. So it's really heartbreaking.
you know, yeah. it's really heartbreaking as a parent to watch that. Hi, this is Brandon from Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, or CURE. For the 65 million people worldwide living with epilepsy, progress is unacceptably slow. At CURE, our mission is to find a cure for epilepsy by promoting and funding patient-focused research. Learn more at cureepilepsy.org. Now back to this episode of Seizing Life. Through all of this, you are still out there advocating and, um, you know, you are a super mom in my book. And, you know, you were sort of talking about earlier how far um, we've come having an EEG readout on paper. Things have changed. It has changed. And... There are some new exciting developments that are coming there down are the pipeline, specifically around um, seizure rescue meds. Mm-hmm. So, can you tell us a little bit about what a seizure rescue med is mm-hmm. and um, what's out there now and okay. what's coming down so the pipeline? So, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Noel seizure clusters because yeah. they're frequent. I would say they occur three to four times a month, and that's for the last 15 years. And she'll have a seizure and a minute later she'll have a second seizure and a minute later she'll have a third seizure and then I know we're in for trouble. So they will continue and sometimes they um, escalate in intensity and she can't get up or go to the bathroom or leave her bed because they happen you know, every 60 seconds. Um, and her head will drop and she'll twitch and she'll drool and then she'll snort in a big breath of air, and then she'll have um, 60 seconds of peace, and then another one will come. So it's a horrible, um, horrible situation. And how long will that that cluster last? If we're lucky, two hours. If we're not, it, it can go you know, 8, 10, 12 hours. Mm-hmm. And the only rescue med that is available that I know of right now is um, a rectal administration and she just outright refuses to do that. And she's 35 years old, and I feel that I have to respect her wishes. She does not want to take a rescue med rectally. Which, I mean, I I personally, like that sounds awful, but there's also, you know, outside of, of modesty or uncomfortability, this has been a major issue within the epilepsy community because what do you do for a child in school? Yes. Do you so many schools, especially in urban areas, don't have nurses don't anymore? Have nurses so anymore. are you going to have that third grade teacher administer a rectal mm-hmm. med to their student? But no. you're the parent and you're worried about sending your child to school exactly. because what if that child goes into status and needs that rescue med desperately? So it's a point of contention. Um, the good news is there's some really good things coming in the pipeline, I think. Nasolam has been recently approved, and that is a, a nasal administration of a midazolam, and that will be life-changing for my daughter, I hope, and for thousands and thousands like her that suffer from these seizure clusters. So we're really excited about that. I don't think it's hit the market yet, but it should be, you know, I hope by the end of the year. So that's really, really good news in the epilepsy community. And I know that there's, there is other research being done trying Mm -hmm. to find other avenues. Um, So hopefully this side of, of seizure medications, these rescue medications to stop these clusters, to stop the, the status epilepticus, we'll, we'll start to see more treatments hitting the market after only really having one drug. One drug for, so we're hitting year 28 in February, and that's all I've had all that time. And that is really a sad, this sad is, situation. It's, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's 
unacceptable. It is unacceptable. It so, really is. It, you so know, we're excited. I'm really excited. You know, we've got different um, different um, administration procedures. You know, some will be in in the in the mouth, and some will be, I think, inhaled. And I think it's uh, going to be a good day for epilepsy when we get some of these options Absolutely. available for our kids. Absolutely. Which sort of leads me into um, my next picking your brain of your decades of experience <laughs> here. Um, you know, so often these rescue meds need to be incorporated into a seizure action right. plan. Right. And I don't know that folks are aware of what a seizure action plan should consist of, mm -hmm. who should have one, mm -hmm. who should uh, not only like who, um, who in terms of like who as an epilepsy patient should have one, but who should that then be disseminated to within that person's community? What are your recommendations for creating a seizure action plan and, and what is it in the first place? Mm -hmm. It's simply a plan. Every patient with epilepsy has their own seizure type, mm -hmm. seizure duration is different for everybody. So it's simply a plan, and this is especially important for children who are in the schools because the nurses and you know the schools without nurses need to know what to do. You know, the first thing we've got to address is, do, you know, should we have the EMTs come mm -hmm. in this case or not? And that's a decision that's made at the school. So the seizure action plan is a plan that's developed with the physician and the school, and the physician signs off on it with the parent's perspective of what they would anticipate should occur if the seizure lasts more than, you know, uh, 10 minutes. Um, some will allow seizure clusters to go for a half an hour, just depending on their own personal situation. Mm -hmm. Moms and dads usually know what they need from the school. And the schools are very accommodating if you can get the doctor on board. In Chicago, we have um, a full load of case managers that are willing to help people develop their seizure action plan with the Epilepsy Foundation case management team and the physician and the school. And they work together to create a plan that's unique for every single student that's with amazing. epilepsy in the schools. Yes. That's an incredible um, resource. Talk about, you know, using an emergency med. Is that needed in the school? Is it not needed in the school? Do you prefer we call an ambulance? Do we not call an ambulance? Do we call the doctor? Call mom and dad immediately and they can come to school. So it's, a, it's just really a precise plan of what to do in an emergency. So it's really beneficial. And what would be included um, in your daughter's seizure action plan, for example, for an adult who perhaps is not in a school. And I think even if you don't have it written on paper, you still need to have, if people are caregiving, mm -hmm. if I have somebody come in to caregive if I'm out for the day, they need to know if a seizure cluster begins, what do we do? At what point do we give an emergency medication? So everybody should have this information available. Adults, yeah. kids, everybody. Well, and it's, I, I'm recalling right now a story of a young woman who was on a subway train mm -hmm. and felt her aura that she was about to have a seizure and she had her seizure action plan. It was a laminated piece of paper and she looked around the train to try and find a face that she thought was friendly and she handed the piece of paper oh, to this strange, this stranger and told her that she was about to have a seizure and could she help her. Excellent. And, um, you know, not all of us have those amazing strangers, you know, wait, sitting on the subway with us. But I think, you know, having Excellent. that laminated piece of paper, having that medical ID bracelet, having whatever that is, um, can really help right. keep 
our family members and you know the pay, our, our epilepsy patients safe. as safe as we can. Yeah, I think there's always risks. Seizures are risky, but I think we've got to do better. Yeah, you know there's um, seizure detection watches and those kinds of things that we'll call an emergency number. So I think we're you know technology is really moving us forward here, and that's great. Yeah, that's really great. Maybe we'll have better options. So I also want to take a moment to talk about the incredible organization that you have started here in the Chicago area, Angel Wings. Mm -hmm. What is it? Why is it important? Why should people care? Well, five years ago, my family and I had a discussion and said, including Noel, you know, mom and dad are getting old and we are not going to be here forever to care for you. I want you to be in a place, Noel, that is beautiful and that you can experience life to the fullest with the necessary supports in place so that you're safe and you're taken care of. So Angel Wings was born and we have been raising funds for the last five years. We're working with the partner agency in DuPage County who is going to be responsible for the care. The funding for the care will come from the state of Illinois. We will buy the home, maintain it, buy the roofs, shovel the snow, and we will be the landlords. So we're actually starting to search for property, you know, this year, by the end of this year, we hope that this is fully funded. And the, um, so the state of Illinois is a little bit tricky to get that pool of money to follow the person with the disability. Uh, there's 25,000 people on a waiting list for that pool of money. So we've, been trying to work out a lot of um, scenarios to make this happen, but I think that we are going to go forward and hopefully by next summer we will have four young women living together with epilepsy, they have to have epilepsy, and living together in a home that will be fully staffed. They'll have 24-hour supervision. They will be able to access community supports, go to programs. That's amazing. And have enriched lives without yes. their parents yeah. because we are not going to make it forever. Unfortunately, we have to pass that baton. Well, and, you know, in sort of speaking to the comorbidity of mental health, you know, to still be living with your parents as, you know, a grown adult right. is also impacting that. So right. to have that independent right. freedom right. that... The choices, that, and it's person-centered. So that's the big buzzword, you know, person-centered planning. So Noel can go to a home and say, I'd like to do this, but I don't want to play bocce on Special Olympics. I want to, um, you know, learn to ride a, a bicycle in the sand. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's supposed to be based on right. what they want. Just like you and I sure. make choices. We want to live the life that we want to live. We want yeah. to have our choices. So we, well, that's amazing. And where can people find more information uh, about Angel Wings? www.angelwingsfoundation.net. Perfect. Debbie, thank you thank so you. much thank for you. sharing. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thank your you. Your story, Noelle's story, and for being an amazing epilepsy fighter for, for all these years. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for allowing me to come. Thank you again to Debbie for sharing her family's journey with epilepsy and explaining the importance of having an action plan. Vital rescue medications which save lives and provide seizure relief for so many epilepsy patients can only be created through years of research and clinical trials. That is why CURE focuses on funding critical research for this condition that will affect 1 in 26 Americans and 65 million people worldwide. Only research can lead us to better understandings of epilepsy and more effective treatments to reduce and eliminate seizures. 
To help CURE fund this important research, please visit cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your support and generosity are greatly appreciated. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.